I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Online podcast. We are Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Hello, my name's Aaron Alexander, and this was the Align Podcast, and today I got to speak with Mr. Rob Wolf. If you don't know who Rob Wolf is, you must have been living under a rock or something like that. And even if you have been living under a rock, you probably heard of him because he is like the leader of the paleo sphere realm. Really fantastic conversation. Um, Rob is a best-selling author. He is a podcaster. He is a speaker. He is just radical human being, and I am so greatly appreciative that we got to have him on today. In this conversation, we chatted about gut dysbiosis and how to clean up your microbiome inside your GI. Uh, we got into nicotine, caffeine, what else, what else, what else? All the potential taboos that people think, um, you know, don't touch that, don't touch this. But some of this stuff might not be as bad as we think, and we can actually utilize certain things as tools, and as long as we don't get uh, consumed by them is the big thing. So we got into that, kind of loosening up on this health martyring yourself for the sake of health stuff that a lot of us are doing. When we're in that in utero environment, uh, our, our genes and, and the, the epigenetic signaling, the methylation of our genes are very tightly regulated. And it, it seems like biology really wants us uh, in that, um, it, it's uh, like Goldilocks and the three bears, like doesn't want too much, doesn't want too little, wants just the right amount. So if somebody did one night of staying up, you know, basically not sleeping in normal circadian rhythm, the next day these people had increased cholesterol levels and increased gut permeability relative to somebody that sleeps well. Again, let's say somebody has some gut dysbiosis. They have some small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We should have the bulk of our bacterial load in the colon to uh, ferment uh, resistant starches and similar fermentable carbohydrates and that creates butyrate and propionate and that feeds the, the gut lining. But some people, due to um, dietary shifts, antibiotics, sleep problems, like a, a host of different issues, they can start getting overgrowth of bacteria further up in the digestive tract, even nearly up into the stomach. Um, really, really super interesting conversation. I greatly appreciate Rob coming on. Um, be sure to jump onto aligntherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, as you know, you'll find the blog, you'll find hundreds of free videos on self-care and functional movement practices. You will find courses, all sorts of great stuff. And we have another special thing that I would like to shout out for you guys to utilize. The Amazon portal, as you've probably heard on other podcasts in the past. Um, jump on, if you're ever ordering something off of Amazon, jump onto the website and you will see the Amazon portal to the right sidebar in the blog and the podcast. <laughs> And por favor, utilize that mofo in order to make your next washing machine purchase or whatever the heck it is that you are going to buy because I get a very small percentage of that and it makes me feel good. Get some free money. So 
Anyways, that's that. And what else? Please leave a review and subscribe and share and all that. Really quick review from Mr. David from Chicago. He says, five star stellar podcast. Not only does Aaron have the charisma as a host, but he is pulling the guests that I am interested in hearing about with the right questions. I am doing my damnedest, David. Thank you so much for your feedback. I greatly appreciate that. For a limited time only, people, you leave me a review and you come to Bend or wherever heck I'm at. I'm going to be in Europe this this, uh, winter. I will personally get down on my knees and sing you a song. That's right. Limited time. I will sing to you. If you ask, just leave a review, bring me a song. Maybe we could even sing together. That would be incredibly beautiful. And for the vast majority of individuals that prefer that I do not sing to you, leave a comment still and just don't tell me about it. That's what we got. Um, Here we go, Mr. Rob Wolf. Rob with two Bs, to be specific. Align Podcast. One of the things that I'm especially impressed with by you is you don't seem very dogmatic about your health and about your nutrition. I think it's so easy to kind of like get on your high horses and, you know, it's all about paleo. It's all about this. It's all about, you know, gluten or whatever. And and we end up getting blinded by the grander spectrum of health. And I think that from listening to you speak and the stuff that you get into, it seems like you're pretty laid back about all this hell stuff. But nonetheless, you're making a massive difference in the world and you seem to be kicking ass in your own body. So I'm curious, how has, has that been an evolution of like finding the middle path for you? Or does it st- did you start off being like hypervigilant about calories and like sleep cycles and all that? Or like, what's that path been like for you to get to this point now where you seem pretty chill about this hell stuff, but nonetheless, you're like you know, a god in the paleo world, you know, like, how did that, how did that happen? That, that's a very rarefied talent pool. So right. I, uh, I, I don't know how much it speaks to my credibility or qualifications. Thank you, though. Uh, very kind words. Um, yeah, man, that's a, that's a really good question. You know, I had a ton of health problems as a kid and young adult. Uh, at the age of 24 to 26, I had uh, Crohn's and irritable bowel disease so bad that they wanted to do a bowel resection on me. And kind of stumbling into this uh, paleo evolutionary medicine template is really what, what healed me. And uh, it, it ended up fixing a lot of stuff, you know, blood glucose dysregulation, digestive issues, uh, just a, a lot of problems. And I figured out that a lot of the problems that my mother had suffered throughout her life were also attributable to uh, – uh, some grain and dairy intolerances and stuff like that. And so I would say in my early days, I was probably a bit more dogmatic about it. But, you know, it's it's interesting. Before we started recording, we we had a little uh, moment talking about technology and, you know, how people will say uh, technology and the interwebs are, are terrible and they're time-consuming and everything. And they are. But there's also this amazing opportunity where um, I really don't feel like you need to be particularly dogmatic about this stuff because I really equate it to uh, trying on a sweater or trying on a pair of jeans. You know, there's all these different approaches, paleo, vegan, macrobiotic, you know, intermittent fasting and whatnot. And it really is as complex as try an approach for 30, 60, 90 days, see how you look, feel, and perform, do some blood work before and afterwards if you want to, to get some really hard, uh, uh, you know, beginning points and endpoints. 
And that's really as complex as the whole story is. And if it's working for you, then great. And if not, then, uh, you know, shift the boat 180 degrees, see how that works. And if it's still working terribly, then shift the boat 90 degrees and, and you know, try something in the middle. And, and through that process, people can whittle their, uh, you know, the need for sleep and exercise, uh, modifying their gut biome in a very precise way, just, just being a little bit diligent with the variables that they play with. So I don't really feel like a, a dogmatic approach is necessary. Um, people have very different life needs. Um, even folks' needs change uh, based off of what's going on in their life. We do a lot of work with police, military, and fire folks. And when they are on a normal day shift, uh, their carbohydrate tolerance is completely different than when they're on a night shift. And so, uh, you, you know, you you can't really get too dogmatic or wrapped around the axle of any one approach because people are different and their life situations are different. And if you really want to help that person, you just have to keep tinkering and seeing what works. So dogma aside, you know, there, there is still certain little, little things that we can do to better ourselves, I think. And I think it's not just like completely you know, throw the dice up in the air and see what happens. I think that we can kind of guide the ship. One of those things that I find to be curious is, you know, oftentimes people end up eating dessert for breakfast, you know, and so you start off your day and you have like your crepe and you have your syrup and then you have your waffle thing and then you have, you know, like some fruit loops after that. And it's just like, I don't know where that tradition came from exactly, but that makes, that makes sense. From my understanding, eating sugary stuff in the morning kind of sets you up for a potential metabolic disaster for the day. And then actually eating carbs like more midday or later in the afternoon or, or night even is, is, from what I've read, better for your body. And better, again, that's kind of like a funny word. But do you have any thoughts on time frame of when we're eating carbs and sugars and such? Oh, man. You know, I think a lot of it boils down to the quality of the carbs and then also what what type of individual we're talking about. You know, if we have a CrossFit Games competitor that is depleting the glycogen in their hair after a workout, you know, I mean, they, they're, they're burning everything possible. You know, they're using depleted uranium as a fuel substrate for, for some of these people. Um, they probably need carbs at, at breakfast, lunch, dinner and snacks and post-workout and all that stuff. Um if you have somebody like it, it's interesting when I spent the bulk of my time running a gym, I was on my feet. I was demoing movements. I, I was quite active. And then I started writing and blogging and doing that type of stuff and uh, wearing a pedometer like my daily movement at, at, at some points would be in the hundred or maybe a couple of thousand steps, you know, and I might go try to to fit in a workout or something, but it was 15 or 20 minutes because I have kids and a wife and all this stuff. And, uh, I found that my carb tolerance really decreased off that. So, I mean, it, it again is a, a really, um, situationally, uh, a driven kind of story as to what carbohydrate tolerance is, is going to do for folks. Uh, you have some folks that, um, due to stress, they may have some uh, abnormally elevated AM cortisol. And so they might actually do better with, you know, a little bit of a mixed meal with a decent amount of carbs because those carbs will kind of mitigate some of that, that uh, uh, kind of adrenal activity, uh, uh, kind of decrease that stress response. Other people have a flip circadian rhythm and they may have elevated cortisol in the evening when it should actually be going down. And to your point, that's when they would probably really benefit from maybe eating the bulk of their carbs. So it's, uh, again, you know, uh, I, I'll, I'll say this. Um, 10 years ago, I felt much more confident about what I thought was the way that 
most people would do optimally. And as time has gone on, I've found that the story is more and more about customization. And I honestly feel dumber every day. I just feel like I understand this stuff less and less uh, just because it's become so much a story of customization and every person is pretty unique. But within that uniqueness, we, we have some consistencies of uh, we need good sleep. We need to kind of entrain to a normal photo period, try to go to bed reasonably close to when the sun get, goes down, get up when the sun gets up, uh, eat as, you know, as unprocessed of foods as we possibly can, right. uh, get movement and exercise within your, your age and fitness tolerances and have really good community. And on that community piece, it's both kind of the people that we interact with, but also the gut microbiome that is a, a part of our being. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more, especially since some of my friends, they're like some of the strongest people that I know, you know, like professional rock climber status. And they're just, it's amazing the things that they can do with their body. And then they stay up at night and smoke a bunch of weed and like party and have a great time. And then they wake up the next day. And they do this amazing feat that people are like taking videos of and just like, oh, wow, like what are they, what are they doing? It's, it's in its own crowds. Like what they're doing is they're smiling a lot. They're really enjoying their life. You know, they're taking advantage of every moment. And I think what that does, I think it impacts you at a cellular level. You know, if you're really genuinely, I'm not, I'm not condoning staying up late and, you know, getting super high, but if it, if everyone has a different approach at this life thing. And, you know, it's very easy, again, to get dogmatic and think like, I discovered the keys to the castle. It's like, I don't know about that. Right. You know, so one of the things, though, that is interesting, though, is, is the hormonal impact that food has on our bodies. You know, and something that I've, I've been really kind of tinkering with the last, like, six months or so is eating butter, just straight butter. Mm-hmm. It's so, so delicious. And now I think I'm, like, I'm almost, like, addicted to it, which I, I have a question of, like, <laughs> is, there, is there a point where you can eat too much butter? Um, but then the, the hormonal impact of eating, say, for example, high fructose corn syrup. You know, where it's like, you know, the, the studies are saying that it's, it actually blocks your ability to feel satiety, you know, and then you're right. eating things like fat where it releases this, this beautiful cocktail of hormones and, you know, it actually induces the feeling of satiety where if you eat, you know, some nuts and some butter, I'm not saying that's the ideal thing to eat, but if you do do that, I mean, you can go a long time and you don't even feel hungry. You know, so yeah. it's very interesting, this dance that we're doing of what we eat impacts the way we feel and the way that we feel impacts the way we, what we eat it's interesting, you know. So. Oh, it, it, it's super interesting. And, you know, uh, so I have some notoriety in this paleo space and I'm in pretty good shape. I'm 43 years old and have a six pack and still have some decent gym lifts. And I do some old dude Brazilian jujitsu. Nice. So from people looking in from the outside, they would think, wow, that guy just totally has his, his stuff wired up. You know, he knows what's going on. But um, I cognitively feel much better on a high fat, lower carb approach. Like I just, my cognition is great. I have unflagging energy. Like I just go and go and go. Um, but with, when I do something like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, which is a very glycolytically demanding sport, it requires a lot of muscle glycogen to do it. Um, if I'm eating low carb, then I just don't have that low gear doing Jiu Jitsu, like the fast scrambles, the transitions and whatnot. I, I just can't do them as often or as well. So if I fuel to optimize my Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, then cognitively, I don't feel as good as what I do when I'm eating lower carb. And I, it's possible I may have some gut dysbiosis with that. I'm doing some testing to try to figure some of that stuff out. But it, it's interesting, you know, I just, uh, 
if I eat a little lower carb, I'm really lean and I have good energy and whatnot. And then I, I stick more carbs in and I can get a little doughy. And it, it seems like I'm eating about the same amount of carbs. You know, I'm, I'm pretty isocaloric in that regard. But uh, both of my parents were diabetic. It's almost certain that I had uh, it was exposed to a gestational diabetic state in utero. Um, I was I had a vaginal birth but wasn't breastfed. I was on tetracycline for uh, uh, acne from the age of like 14 to about 21. So when I start putting together some life history stuff, I have some uh, I have some tick marks in the not so great side of the column that really sets me up for some difficulty. You know, so it's uh, it, again um, this is where folks have a great opportunity to be able to to tinker and figure out, well, do I do better on a little bit higher carb or lower carb, or do my carbs need to be really slow release like yams and sweet potatoes? Uh, do I just stick the carbs in post-workout, which is something that I do. So I tend to do more of a protein and fat type breakfast. I do uh, jits around 11 a.m. And then depending on the volume and the intensity of training that day, I might do 150, 200 grams of carbs from sweet potato or white rice or something like that. And then my dinner meal is some really low glycemic load carbs like, like squash or maybe a little bit of melon or something. And that's kind of been my happy medium with this. I still don't cognitively feel as good as I did, uh, you know, with a low carb, 100% low carb deal, but I've got more pop for my, for my sportive activities. And that's kind of been the happy medium that I'm at, but I'm still tinkering, still fiddling. I, I feel like, uh, uh, you know, maybe my best uh, cognition and best uh, athletic performance should happen with the same uh, macronutrient intake, but maybe that's not true. Maybe there's some trade-off there. Yeah. Could you, is it possible to break down what we should know about eating potatoes? You know, so there's, there's squashes and there's yams and there's sweet potatoes and there, you know, there's all these different realms of potato. And from my understanding, they're not all created equally. You know, so is there a, a, a better time of the day to be eating a certain potato? Is there one potato that ha packs more of a punch than others? Like, what are your thoughts on potatoes? Oh man, that's, um, <laughs> I just, I, I just spent the weekend with Chris Cresser and Dan party and both those guys are, uh, about eight, eight times smarter than I am. And so I always learn a ton hanging out with those guys. And you know, it's, it's interesting. So again, let's say somebody has some gut dysbiosis. They have some small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We should have the bulk of our bacterial load in the colon to uh, ferment uh, resistant starches and similar fermentable carbohydrates. And that creates butyrate and propionate and that feeds the, the gut lining but some people, due to um, dietary shifts, antibiotics, sleep problems, like a, a host of different issues, they can start getting overgrowth of bacteria further up in the digestive tract, even nearly up into the stomach, and that can cause a lot of problems. And what's interesting is certain types of potatoes, which have a very high glycemic index, they tend to digest and absorb very, very early in the digestive tract. And so... Some folks will find that they can eat things like uh, jasmine rice or Idaho russet potatoes, and they do fine with that. Like they don't get cognitive problems. Um, they, uh, uh, they don't get bloating or weird, weird GI issues. Now, then we look at squash and sweet potatoes and, and yams. They've got a little bit more fructose in them, but they have a lot more fermentable fiber. And interestingly, that is probably the type of food that we should be eating more of because it should be growing the bacteria in our colon. But if you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, you're actually going to feed that problem. 
So the low glycemic load fermentable carbohydrates that should be good for us, if you are already sick, those may actually be problematic foods, whereas a little bit more, you know, almost refined or easily digestive car- digestible carbohydrates, actually you may do better on that, at least in the short run, but we still are doing a work around a problem instead of addressing a problem. And I, right. I know that maybe doesn't exactly address your question, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, 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 I wish that just simply eating wasn't as complex as what it, it, it kind of turns into, but it, it kind of gets that way. And this is where I think that the, the uh, macronutrient wars rage where you have people very dogmatic about yeah. low carb is the way to go or, you know, other people tried low carb and it didn't work for them and they really need a, a consistent carbohydrate intake. But it, again, based on the situation, it really depends on the individual and it, it kind of even goes beyond the amount of carbohydrate that we're consuming, but the actual qualitative nature of it. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd mentioned gut dysbiosis, so you'd mentioned, you know, IBS at a young age and that, you know, and I'm I'm finishing up a book, super great book. If you haven't checked it out, it's, it's called uh, why zebras don't get ulcers by Robert yes. Sapolsky. So, yeah. so good, man. I love yeah. that book. And he gets into all sorts of studies that I think are great. And, um, but one of the things that he, he talks about in there is the impact of, you know, pre your prenatal experience, you know, and how much mm-hmm. stress your mother's going through, you know, and there's another story that you may have heard of. You heard of the, the Dutch hunger winter. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, and so and and so, what was happening through that? Like, long story short, is these these women, in, while they were having children, they weren't able to eat. They were eating like like uh, what was it, tulip petals or so. Like they were right. very very low amount of food that they were able to take in. And what they were doing is they were setting their children up for being stingy with their calories, holding right. on to those calories. Another study along with that, or several studies in relation to that, is how much stress the the mother is under during utero. And how that impacts the babies or the child's, the human's stress response throughout their life. So my question is, how does the impact of stress, how does that, that have the impact on our immune system? Because I know that you do some, quite a bit of writing about immune system and autoimmune disease and things of that nature. Is, do you have any connections with, with impacts of stress on our immune system? Yeah. And, you know, stress can, it, uh, I, I don't know if you played around with a thing called a heart rate variability monitor, but it, it's, uh, you know, our, our heart beats theoretically at kind of a normal cadence. But really what happens is that there's a chaotic nature to the heart. It speeds up, it slows down. Uh, uh, over the course of time, there's lots of variability to it. And healthy individual at, at rest has a ton of heart rate variability and then when they're doing physical activity, there's a, uh, uh, an entrainment. And so there's not as much variability. And then an unhealthy individual tends to have lower heart rate vari- variability at rest and more variability under a training load. Right. And all types of stress affect that. Psychological stress, physical training stress, uh, stress from, uh, uh, let's say, you're gluten intolerant and you get a gluten exposure and, and you get a cortisol release from that, then uh, uh, that will alter heart rate variability. So stress is a, a really multifaceted uh, beast and it, it affects the body in a, a fully systemic way. And uh, folks will notice that they could eat more poorly while on vacation than what they do at home and they get leaner and they feel pretty good and then they get home and the you know stress and work life starts kind of building up on them and they have to eat you know much more tightly 
to be able to have the same body composition and whatnot. So, I mean, stress is really a huge factor, but uh, I think it's really important to note that stress can be a lot of different things. It can be our gut bacteria being off. It can uh, uh, be uh, eating foods that we're immunoreactive to. It could be work stress, life stress, money stress, you know, the more classic uh, things that we associate with stress. But it can be a lot of different things, and it absolutely modifies our, our uh, immune function. And it's interesting when we're in that in utero environment, uh, our, our genes and, and the, the epigenetic signaling, the methylation of our genes are very tightly regulated. And it, it seems like biology really wants us uh, in that um, it, it's uh, like Goldilocks and the three bears, like doesn't want too much, doesn't want too little, wants just the right amount. And the right amount being kind of nutrients, particularly glucose. So if if glucose is too low, if if calories are too low for the uh, for for the mom, then it sets up some very negative epigenetic programming for the for the fetus. And then the converse of that is that if you have a hyperinsulinemic, overfed uh, maternal environment, then that sets the fetus up for some problems also. So again, there's kind of this. Uh, uh, middle ground that's pretty optimum for both the the mother and the fetus, and again that that really falls back to a stress response. And biology uh, tries to prime us for uh, what we are going to face in the extra uterine environment. You know, after we're born. So if our mother was uh, consuming inadequate calories, then biology is saying, well, it might still be lean time, so we're going to set this kid up to really hoard every calorie that he or she consumes. And that individual is going to find a harder time uh, remaining lean in our, our uh, hyper palatable, ubiquitous food environment. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, stress response is beautiful. You know, when you see stress response in nature, it's, it's gorgeous. You know, like the, the rabbit gets away from the whatever ra- chases rabbits, the hawk, you know, right. it's like, and, it's, and it's beautiful to watch. And what you see if, you know, the few times that the rabbit does make it away or the zebra does make it away from the lion. Is you see them, they find a shady place, they go, and they almost have like this convulsive release of whatever that stress cocktail that just got surged through their system was, you know, and they actually take the time to process that information. Us as humans, we don't do that, you know. We just go from one response to the next. Right. To the next, it's to it's the actually next. Yeah. it's actually embarrassing, you know. It's like I don't know if you've ever wrecked a bike in the middle of a road or done, you know, fallen down some uh, uh, some steps or something. You know, it's like you immediately you you shut off. You you, you immediately oh, you brush yourself off. You like laugh it off. It's like I'm fine. I'm fine. It's no big deal. It's totally everything's good, you know. And what your body is doing at a deeper level is it's sending all of these stimuli, you know, that it needs to release that. But we just pack it up and keep on moving on. Right. And so that's one of the things again that that um, Sapolsky gets into with the book is the impact of the, the release of glucocorticoids, which is like, you know, the famous ones being like cortisol. Everybody knows about, you know, stress hormone cortisol. And that actually breaking down or down-regulating lymphocytes, white blood cells, the things that are, you know, attacking the bacteria, blah, blah, blah. But what it does at first, it increases your, your uh, immune system. It, it's, it strengthens your immune system for a short time. With longer duration, you end up breaking that immune system down, burning out all of those glands that are helping you out, and then eventually autoimmune disease is what he is getting at. I don't know. Do we have right. like an answer as far as like where autoimmune disease comes from? Is that like a big question mark? What do we? You, you know, there's there. It definitely has a multifactorial input. But one of the things that was really interesting that came out of Alicio Fasano's work looking at celiac disease. 
Uh, celiac disease is an autoimmune gluten issue where we uh, gluten through a, a series of, of steps causes an immune reaction where our, our body's own cells mount an in immune response, an antibody response to uh, tissues in our body. And it can be anything. It can be the gut lining. It can be neurological tissue. It can be heart tissue, muscle tissue. And uh, one of the things that Alessio Fasano found is that one consistent commonality across seemingly all autoimmune diseases is some sort of breakdown in the intestinal lining, like there's a loss of, of uh, intestinal barrier function. And it's interesting, back around 2002, 2003, if you looked in PubMed and you put in the search term intestinal permeability, you got maybe two, 300 search results, and most of it was saying that this was quackery, that it didn't exist, you know, that, that uh, uh, people claiming this were, were you know, uh, totally off the rocker. And what's interesting now, uh, 2015, there's over 11,000 citations on intestinal permeability, and it's really the hottest area of immunology that, that, that we're uh, researching currently. And there's a ton of different diseases from atherosclerosis, high blood pressure, uh, classic autoimmune diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, all seem to have some intestinal barrier breakdown as a commonality. There was just a great paper that came out in The Lancet, I believe, basically asking the question, is atherosclerosis an autoimmune disease? And something that people forget is that the, the lipoproteins, HDL, LDL, you know, we always uh, are, most folks are familiar with these when they get their, their standard blood work done. Those lipoproteins carry fats and lipids around the body. So they're, they're involved in shuttling energy around, but they're also part of the innate immune system. They help us to fight bacterial infections. They help us fight cancer. Uh, viral infections. So those things are really important. And if we are under chronic stress, then we tend to see an upregulation of cholesterol production and lipoprotein production because the body is kind of thinking, well, what the heck's going on? I'm not sure what's going on, but we, you know, if we're under a lot of stress, we need to make sure that we don't die from a bacterial infection or something like that. And so uh, a lot of what we see with cardiovascular disease may be uh, you know, a multi-step process growing out of different stress responses, you know, that emanate from a, a breakdown in the intestinal barrier. And, and uh, when you talk to lipidologists or cardiologists about this stuff, it's kind of mind-blowing because every person that you talk to, it all kind of circles back to the gut and stress response and whatnot. And you're, you're kind of proposing a panacea in a way. Um, and it kind of makes the, the need or the, the uh, focus on specialization not, not quite as as important and that that can be a little disturbing for folks but uh the the one commonality that we do seem to see with autoimmune disease seems to be some sort of breakdown in the intestinal barrier function hmm. have you read uh, any katie bowman's work she has like the biology yes. okay and yeah. so moving our dna's is one of her books and and in there one of the things that she mentions is uh potential link of atherosclerosis with repetitive stress in our joints in our bodies you know and so that 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 fatty plaque buildup could have something to do with a stress response of we're not moving functionally through that space or we're moving the same you know the same direction mm -hmm. over and over again eventually it starts to stress the lining the endothelial tissue and 
and the response is build up some plaque, you know, and, and, and at the, at the moment of it's a good protective device, but with long term, I think that I'm not saying this is exactly what's happening. This is what I, I got out of the book, you know, but long term, I think things like that, they can almost look like it's like an autoimmune disease because it keeps getting worse. Your body's attacking itself, right. but it's because the system's not flowing functionally in the first place. You know, and so if you don't have that flow, all of a sudden water starts spritzing all over the place and, you know, the, the gizmo starts to break down just because you're not able to get that proper circulation. And I think that that starts manifesting. You're looking like your body's attacking itself. Right, right. <laughs> and, you know, I just had Katie on my, my podcast. She's brilliant and really, really uh, uh, incredibly knowledgeable in that scene. And it's interesting, you know, the, the takeaway that I kind of get from Katie's work is that we should do as great a variety of movement as we possibly can, sure. walk over uneven surfaces, you know, crawl and brachiate and do all this stuff. And what, what the, the, the odd thing is that our modern world is all about specialization. There's a great book called The, the Rational Opt Optimist by Matt Ridley. And he makes the point that the reason why we live in as, as uh, uh, a rich environment as we do, if you, if you kind of buy that, that modern Western living is rich, which I, I think it is in a lot of ways. But yeah. the way that you get there is specialization. You kind of find your niche of what you're really good at. And you do it a little bit better than most everybody else. And, and that's the way that you get good at it. But we entrain some really um, narrow frequency bands in our, our experience. You know, for me, I, I found that my writing seemed to resonate with folks and doing some podcasting resonated with folks. So a lot of what my time became was sitting and hunching over a computer and not moving around and doing a big variety of stuff. And it, it would be better for me if I dug some ditches on one day and coached some people on another day and, you know, did some mountain biking on a third day and some capoeira on a fourth day and, you know, just rotated through that. But uh, we get sportive goals, you know, like you mentioned that you, you hang out with some high level rock climbers to get really good at rock climbing. You need to rock climbing a lot. You need to rock climb a lot. But then the training that goes into that may then end up having some kind of maladaptive uh, consequences. And so, Modern world also is, a, you know, it's about finding, you know, the specialty that you're good at and kind of focusing on it um, for, for a movement, uh, a wide movement palette. I should be out walking around the hills around my house in Reno. So I'm going over uneven terrain and stuff like that. But again, doing old guy Brazilian jiu-jitsu, part of my training that really helps me is doing some uh, really steady state cardio where my heart rate is between 130 and 145 beats per minute. And I need to maintain that for 45 to, to 60 minutes. And I can't do that walking around the hills in my neighborhood. I go, I go anaerobic, pulling a really steep hill, and then I have almost no stimulus going down uh, uh, the grade on the other side. And so what I would normally want to do from a dynamic health perspective is not really benefiting the sport that I do, which is Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Right. So it's this funny thing, you know, it's uh, 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 you end up needing to kind of pick your poison. Like, do you just want to be uh, a very generalist at stuff and probably healthier and, and, and arguably potentially happier? Or do you have some sportive type goals where you you literally are making some sacrifices to be better at that, that chosen uh, uh, specialized activity? Right. Yeah, I mean, and you can't disregard specialists because if it weren't for specialists martyring their bodies for, you know, all this cool stuff that we're playing with, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, like somebody out there, you know, created the interweb and then created Skype and all that stuff. And their body got taxed 
for it, I'm sure. You know, and so it's it's like it's like thank you, you know, specialists of the Thanks world. Thanks for taking that bullet. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. It's fantastic, you know. But at the same time, I do believe that it is possible to be a phenomenal specialist and still get a full range of motion through your body, still get a full range of motion through your mind, you know, and a full range of motion through your relationships and your experiences in the world. But it's very, very easy to get in this tunnel vision of I need to create the Skype. You know, I this is this is all I need to do, this is all all I'm here for. And in the end, there will be consequences. So I think with that, it's just, it's the same thing. Like I, I kind of started off with talking about you. It's like finding that middle ground. You know, it's like the middle way is always, always the answer. It may take you a little bit longer to create Skype, you know, or whatever your invention is. But in the long run, I think, you know, your hypertension or your inflammation or your diabetes or whatever will, you know, you'll be thankful that you didn't have to deal with that stuff because you stressed yourself out in this very specialized realm. Not to say right. that's necessarily absolutely going to lead to that, but I wanted to get into the topic of inflammation and how, because we're talking about stress and like, you know, how that impacts you to a biological level. Deep down, if you look at like every pathology out there, almost every pathology out there, at some point, it's going to say inflammation of the something, you know? And so if we can get down to the core root of like, what is causing inflammation in the system in the first place, I feel like that could be a decent panacea for a lot of different potential issues that humans deal with. Do you have any, any thoughts or sense on that? Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. And I sound like an incredibly uninteresting broken record, but I, I think a ton of that inflammatory response really ends up popping up initially in the gut. Um, and I started doing some poking around and I looked at uh, uh, intestinal permeability related to shift work. So if somebody did one night of staying up, you know, basically not sleeping in normal circadian rhythm, the next day these people had increased cholesterol levels and increased gut permeability relative to somebody that sleeps well. Uh, it's somebody that does a remarkably hard training session. One of the things that happens is a loss of intestinal barrier function. And we, we see this occasionally with uh, ultra endurance athletes where they end up pooping themselves during an an event, uh, they they get an ischemic uh, uh, necrosis that occurs in their uh, gastrointestinal lining because all the blood is being shunted disproportionately to the muscles, and so the gut really goes into a, a maintenance mode, and it doesn't get enough nutrients or blood, and the, the tissues will actually die. So you get this uh, uh, necrotic uh, effect from really really high intensity training. So lack of sleep can cause intestinal permeability, excessive training can cause intestinal permeability, inadequate training can cause intestinal permeability, uh, uh, stressful environments over the course of time, like loud, loud noises, you know, uh, uh, threatening environment can, can change all that. And so I may, I may be suffering from a huge amount of confirmation bias, like I'm just kind of looking around looking for something like, oh, dude, there it is again and again and again. Right. But I do think that there's something there and it gets a little bit dubious as to cause and effect and, and you know, all that type of stuff. But we're really consistently seeing something there, which is a loss of intestinal barrier function. And then we definitely see a heightened inflammatory response. And this is something that I've noticed that if folks modify their diet and they eat a, a lower inflammatory diet, they, you know, if they're gluten intolerant or, or dairy intolerant or whatnot, they pull those foods out. They tend to be able to exercise more. Their sleep tends to be better. Uh, seasonal allergies tend to improve because the inflammatory response is an outgrowth of our immune system. And we have the innate immune system, which is 
you know, like macrophages and, and some of the other white blood cells that uh, deal in the first line response of, say, like a, an infection or an injury. And then we have the adaptive immune system that produces antibodies. And any element of the immune system, if it goes on high alert, all of the immune system goes on high alert. And it just kind of makes sense. It's like a civil defense network. You know, we, we have a flood. And so everything, you know, goes on, on high alert within that civil defense network. So if we're doing something that, that irritates one part of the immune system, we tend to see an upregulation in all parts of the immune system. If things are on high alert, the potential for something to just kind of go sideways is, is just increased. Yeah. And, and then a long kind of similar conversation that we've, we've had is, you know, is it chicken or the egg with the gut dysbiosis and the issues right. happening in your microbiome? You know, it's like if your system is broken, you know, it's like Buckminster Fuller is like if the system doesn't work for you, make a new system. You know, don't right. try and fit yourself into this box. You know, it's like if it, it's, it, maybe your relationships are stressing you out. Maybe your job is not the right job for you. Maybe, you know, there's so many variables that are happening there that you could eat all the probi probiotics in the world. Your gut is still going to get that stimulus and that response to saying like, things aren't okay, you know? And so right. your, your, your guts are a big part of your parasympathetic nervous system, you know, and activation of your guts, that movement through your guts, if you massage your belly, it'll chill you out. You know, what else is going to help chill you out is movement through there in general. It doesn't necessarily need to be you're paying a manual therapist to work around your liver. You know, just getting that movement, take a, like a belly dancing class or something, right? <laughs> you know, get some movement in that system. Start looking a little bit outside of the standard box and like what you necessarily read and like health magazine or whatever, you know, it says like you need this exact concoction of supplements in order for it to work. Those supplements, you know, it's like anything. It's a tool that's dependent upon the intelligence of the user, in my opinion. You know, and I, I think that we need to dance from both ends of that spectrum there. And again, getting into like, you know, the superstar rock climbers that have total crap diets. How do they do that? You know, like how, how, do, how are they smiling all the time? You know, how are they having this, like from the outside perspective, it looks amazing, whatever they're doing. And then you look at their diet and it doesn't match any health model that you would possibly right. look at. It's like, what is that? You know, and I, and I, I think that it is, again, it's, it's looking both outside of the box and inside of the box, but getting it from both angles, you know, so along with kind of things that are potentially, you know, taboo, or you think like, oh, that can't be good. You know, Rob Wolf, no way does he, you know, drink alcohol or no way, to, you know, <laughs> from my understanding, you have a couple drinks a day. Um, is that, a, is that a thing or is that, is that a couple of drinks a week? Like a I, week. and I, okay. I, I try to do, uh, do them earlier in the day. Cause, uh, I, I do like a good NorCal margarita here and there, but, um, it absolutely disturbs my sleep. Like oh, okay. without a doubt. And I know a lot of people will have a glass of wine or a cocktail in the evening uh, under the assumption that it's going to help them sleep. And it, it does help you get into the first couple of layers of sleep, but alcohol, Ambien, uh, uh, diphenhydramine, you know, like uh, Benadryl and some of the over-the-counter over sleep meds, they make you unconscious, but they don't really let you sleep. And those deep stages of sleep, level four sleep is where we really do all the memory consolidation. It's where our immune function gets gets reset. So I, uh, I I have a couple of drinks a week. I definitely enjoy them. I try to have them earlier in the day, you know, more like 4 or 5 p.m. Uh, versus like 8 or 9 p.m., you know, uh, much closer to, to bedtime because I just noticed that it really, really disturbs my sleep. And Mark Sisson and I were having a, a talk about this at Palo FX, and he was pretty consistently having a glass or two of wine each, each evening and, um, 
started pushing them earlier in the day and noticed some improvement and then pulled them out entirely and noticed even more improvement. And so it's, uh, again, depending on what, um, you know, what your goals are. And certainly as you age, like you just have less recuperative capacity. And so if you're allocating some of your recovery towards dealing with alcohol, then you've got less to deal with what you want to learn, your physical activities and all the rest of it. And so it just becomes a cost-benefit story. When you're in your teens and 20s, you can do just about everything. Like everybody's Wolverine in their, their teens and 20s. You get into your 30s, you need to start partitioning things. You get 40s, 50s and beyond and you have to really, really think about what you're doing if you, you want to hang on to as, as much capacity as you have. Right. I was talking to another fella. It's called Dr. Cobb from uh, Z Health. He has really, really cool yeah. system. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. You know, and one of the things that he mentioned that I really dig is uh, the stress bucket, you know, and so looking at mm. like we all have this capacity. It's amazing that there's some of the human beings that I see walking around the world. Like if you go to Vegas, like some of the, the fact that these people are still Live. alive yeah. is yeah. like, oh, like the human organism is just so robust. You know, it's amazing that, that it keeps us going. You know, but one of the things that he gets into is, you know, the, the concept of like the, the stress bucket, you know, and we have a point where we can handle X amount of stress and everyone probably has a different size bucket, but at some point that stress does start to overflow, you know, and that's pretty much what we're going to be thinking about is like, you know, ideally eliminate the stressors that aren't, you know, hermetic or aren't like beneficial for your body, you know, but watching out for how much stress do I have? Because everyone can operate on a fair amount of stress, but it's when it starts to starts to accumulate and pile up, that's when systems start shutting down, you know, and that's when it's like, you know, if there's a hurricane coming, don't paint the house, honey, you know, it's, right. <laughs> it's not time, you know, and so right. we'd ideally like to be in a perpetual house painting mode and then sometimes throw a party on it and then clean up but oftentimes people are just the hurricane is always looming you know we're always right. there and it's like that's the thing we need to be thinking about is it's not necessarily eliminate all stressors because that could be stressful you know right. if, you, if you start martyring yourself like no i'm not going to go out i'm not going to dance tango tonight because i know i'm going to have a glass of wine you know and that's not good for me i don't want alcohol in my system that's not right it's like uh, measure it you know have balance right. with that so i Another thing that I'd like to get into as long as, as far as things that are like potentially controversial is uh, coffee and caffeine. Do you have thoughts on that? Because I, it's, there's so many people that have very, very strong opinions, both directions. Right. And, and uh, <laughs> I, I will um, fail or annoy probably everybody and that, it, you know, it's another, it kind of depends thing. Um, there's some great epidemiological uh, studies that seem to indicate that the more coffee that people drink, the longer they live. Like it decreases uh, likelihood of chole- uh, cholesterol de- deposition in the arterial walls, mm. decreases type 2 diabetes, you know, it, uh, it acts as a hormetic stressor and an antioxidant. But then there's, there's a reality that the, as tightly wound as folks are, um, coffee and, and other stimulants may be uh, kind of the ca- the the straw that breaks the camel's back. And there's a, there's a really interesting feature in this with regards to individuality. Uh, the average for people to clear caffeine out of their system is about an eight hour half-life. So if I consume 200 milligrams of caffeine at noon, on average, most people will have a hundred milligrams of caffeine in their system at 8 PM, which is still quite stimulating and could be enough to suppress uh, melatonin production and get some normal sleep. So 
Uh, some people will will uh, find that that uh, even drinking coffee around noon could be problematic for them. The other interesting caveat to that is that uh, within that normal distribution of of eight hour average, you have some people that clear that have a two hour half life with caffeine. You have other people that have a thirty six hour half life with caffeine. So somebody could have a cup of coffee this morning. And then tomorrow morning, they still have like 100 milligrams caffeine in their system. So, you know, some people will say, I just cannot handle caffeine, can't handle coffee, tea, whatever. And they're probably spot on with that. You know, if we move them to a desert island and they were super relaxed and uh, hanging out in the sun and getting good vitamin D and going spearfishing and and whatnot, they might be able to handle it a lot better. But because they're kind of wound tight and they're driving in city traffic and whatnot, and they happen to be a slow metabolizer of caffeine, then it may be a horrible uh, fit for them. So this is where, uh, you know, you can get in and do some genetic testing on this, but usually just, uh, you know, if you have a cup of coffee at like noon, can you get good sleep? Or if you don't have coffee at noon, do you get much better sleep than, than the coffee at, at noon? And then you start figuring out if you're a slow or a fast metabolizer of, of caffeine. So it, it uh, Again, it really depends. And, you know, I used to try to commit suicide by caffeine intake. You know, I just drank ridiculous amounts of, of uh, Bialetti stove, stovetop espresso made coffee because it's delicious and great and all that. I'm down to, a, you know, one, maybe two uh, half-calf, half-decaf uh, espressos a day, and that's it. And I, I feel a lot better on that. And the interesting thing is that when I'm tired, I do not do caffeine. I don't right. go to the well and try to goose Goose yeah. those adrenals even more. If I, you know, we have a, a three-year-old and eleven-month-old, sleep is usually pretty good. Occasionally, it's not. That day when my sleep is is really bad, I just do less work and I don't do caffeine and I just try to chill out. And that's just the way it is. Whereas in the past, I would have drank a lot of caffeine and tried to motor through that. And I found then that uh, that my overall health wasn't as good. Right. Yeah. And I think it's it's like you're saying where it's like it's depends on the individual depends on where your, their nervous system's at, you know? And so if you're an individual that's already stressed out and anxious and, you know, underslept and overworked, you think that you are like the quintessential coffee guy, you know, you need right. it. You are not, you know, it's like, there's so many other realms that you need to address, you know? And I think oftentimes, like you're saying, it's like, if you're, if you're genuinely tired and you want to get up, I think that that can be pretty detrimental. And one of the things that I've, I've noticed is, in my own body, you know, totally anecdotal is there's, there's a time and a place where, and it is kind of that, you know, am I, what is, what, what kind of tiredness is this? Is this like first thing groggy, like, well, kind of tired, you know, or is this like overworked type tired? Right. And something that I, I've noticed personally is sometimes what I need to do is I'm tired because I haven't moved enough. You know, mm-hmm. my body just feels sticky and I feel like I'm in kind of like this human tissue prison and I'm like, Ooh, maybe I'll have some coffee and that'll like wake me up. And what it ends up doing is it makes me feel worse, you know? And and so I think we need to kind of look at that, like really develop, expand out our toolbox, our energetic toolbox, you know, like how, what, what are my other options? Maybe if I go for a walk in the woods, maybe if I do some jumping jacks, maybe if I roll some jujitsu or, you know, whatever I do, listen to some music. And then once you get that ball rolling, then I think, you know, you probably won't need the caffeine, but if you throw a little bit of that in there, it can, your body can work with it in a better way. And that's just my own personal experience of what feels good to me. But that like crash, that's usually when it comes. It's like 
my body's already saying like, you need something else. You know, you don't no, need I, caffeine right now. I totally agree. And you know, it's, it's funny. So we moved out to a two, two and a half acre farm about a month and a half ago. And so I've just been finding that my day's activities are, are much greater. Like where used to, I would kind of spin out on the internet and tweak articles I'm writing and stuff. And what I've really been good about is when my workday is done, it's done. Like everything gets shut down and then I go outside with the girls and I'm, you know, uh, uh, digging trenches and moving wheelbarrow loads of, of soil around and stuff like that. And what I've found is that if I am physically active, I could probably drink caffeine pretty consistently throughout the day. And I, I do well with that. Yeah. But that's, you know, our, um, it, if you are sitting at a desk uh, right. and then drinking caffeine, you're sending a stimulant into your system that's telling you, Let's hey, go. get off your ass and move. Right. <laughs> but then you're locked in place. And so it's like one foot on the brake, one on the gas kind of kind of deal. So I, I, I think that it, I completely agree with that, you know, uh, uh, but then that said, sometimes I, I want to get in and do some really good writing. And here's a, a bit of uh, controversy for you when I, so I was a, a consultant for the Naval Special Warfare Resiliency Committee for about five years. I would go speak to the SEALs and the special boat teams. And the first, when they first engaged me, they said, we want you to talk about nutrition and sleep and exercise and booze and caffeine and nicotine. And I'm like, okay, you know, so I, I felt reasonably comfortable with that stuff, but I really wanted to brush up on the, the pharmacology, toxicology of uh, caffeine and nicotine. And caffeine I was pretty familiar with, no, no real surprises there. And then I started digging around on nicotine and I was like, huh, that's weird. Like this stuff actually is a stimulant, but it's a stimulant in a different way that coffee is. And if you're not consuming it via tobacco products, then it actually doesn't really seem to be particularly toxic. And so I was like, huh, I'm going to try chewing a piece of nicotine gum. And lo and behold, I had probably better cognitive function than I've had on ProVigil or Adderall or like anything that I'd tinkered with. So occasionally, if I need to really focus and I've got a three, four-hour block of time where I can really get in and do some writing and some creative work, I'll take a two, two milligram piece of nicotine gum, bite it in half so I get a one milligram dose of it, stick it up in my, my uh, uh, cheek and let it slowly uh, dissolve. And I get a really great uh, uh, cognitive focus on that. I don't, I don't overly abuse it or overly use it, but it, that was an interesting kind of controversial thing. And so in talking to the SEALs, what I found is that if these guys needed to be awake, they're, they're usually on night operations or up all night. They, they sleep during the day. They use stimulants to wake up. They use uh, Ambien and stuff like that to go down. And if these guys needed to be awake for another couple of hours, instead of doing a coffee or an energy drink, I was like, why don't you do a little bit of nicotine gum? And it keeps you awake and it ke keeps you uh, uh, focused but it doesn't impact sleep the same way. Hmm. And so there's a controversial piece. Like I use nicotine sure. gum occasionally to, uh, uh, for focus. And it, you know, if I, I need to be alert for a particular activity and it's interesting, like it really seems to help the, the creative, uh, kind of hyper focused element that I, I need when I'm, I'm doing some good writing. Right. You know, and that's what we end up doing in our culture is we end up, you know, vehemently standing on one side or the other, you know, there's no like, you come up with this, we taboo, whatever it may be, marijuana, you know, it's like marijuana's bad, reefer madness, you know, it's like, and then you get, you start to stand behind this thing and you become blind to anything else, you know, any other right. factoids that come out that it's like, 
well, you know, it actually is really good for blank, blank, blank. You just completely cut that out and assume that that person's crazy, and then you get back into the information that you prefer. When we're conducting our studies, you know, it's like science is a flashlight. You know, it's, and oftentimes it finds exactly what it's looking for. Right. You know, and I think that that happens with so many things that we, that again, we stand so passionately behind. And then, you know, Rob Wolf mentions that people actually choose some nicotine when he writes articles sometimes. <laughs> you know, it's like, and people will lose their minds over it. Right? Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so is there any addictiveness with that? Really not. And that's kind of the funny thing. Like nicotine gum is pretty piss poor in getting people off of cigarettes and, che- and chewing tobacco. And part of the, the story with that is that uh, tobacco has four or 5,000 different chemical constituents and nicotine can be addictive but a lot of the other constituents also have some addictive properties to it. So the the same thing that makes nicotine gum not that effective at, at stopping smoking, it, it, it's helpful. But I mean, it's it's not it's not as effective as just like, well, I'll just chew gum and then I'll, it'll be easy to get off off of smoking. It just doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Uh, I assume that you could get some habituation with it with some pretty pretty steady use. Again, probably within. Um, uh, genetic variability. You probably have certain people that are more predisposed than others, similar to caffeine, you know, and, and a variety of substances. But the the addictive potential of just caffeine in like a lozenge or or a um, a gum form seems to be much much less than tobacco products themselves. And then you're not getting any of the uh, uh, carcinogenic potential there. Right. Yeah. And with addiction, you know, it reminds me of the, the Happy Gilmore movie where they have like the big scary guys wearing the T-shirt. Thing that says something like guns don't kill people. I kill people or guns don't kill people. But, you know, <laughs> guns don't kill people. People kill people. You know, I don't think that there's any such thing. There's stuff, there's substances that are more or less addictive for sure. But I think that what it is, is there's addictive personalities. There's addictive, there's people that are more prone to get involved with something like that and start right. filling whatever emotional void they have in their own system with said nicotine patch or said, you know, whatever it may be, eating food, having sex, going out. You know, there's all these different things that it's like, if you're trying to fill aspects of your own personality and your own deeper self, you know, with anything, you are There's an, addictive potential. Yeah, yeah, you are on a platform yeah. for addiction. You know, but if you're an individual that's like, you know what, I feel pretty good. And I can kind of dabble with this toolbox of I have this nicotine thing, I have this marijuana thing, I have this alcohol thing. I can actually use them as the tools that they were intended for. You know, but in our culture, everything again, we you know, we we villainize this stuff and then it becomes sexy. You know, because we right. don't have any understanding right. about it. That's, that's all the Malcolm Gladwell stuff. Like the best thing you could ever do is uh, make something taboo and then the bad kids do it and oh, everybody yeah. wants to be the bad kids. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. You know, and there's a, go on. There's a, a really interesting study and I, I don't know if it was Sapolsky that did this, but it, 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 it's making me think of him. But they tested some rats and they put rats in a, a, a um, a very dull environment and then they put another group of rats into an enriched environment and they provided both of the rats cocaine-laced water. And they just watched, you know, the frequency that it would go back to the cocaine-laced water. Both groups of rats liked the cocaine-laced water initially. The group that was in an enriched environment didn't consume the water ultimately like a month later at any greater frequency than what they would consume water just for hydration. But the rats that were in a very uh, sensory-deprived environment, uh, they became addicted to it. They consumed massive amounts of it. So that's another 
feature of, of addiction, and it, this can be food, you know, like uh, hyperpalatable foods, potato chips, processed food, um, internet porn. I mean, you know, the, the list is probably long and, and growing all the time. But if you live in a very narrow frequency band life, I think that the likelihood of some element of, of uh, these potentially addictive uh, constituents of our modern life snagging you, I think it's much, much greater. But again, that kind of circles around to, uh, you know, what I mentioned earlier with the, the Matt Ridley rational optimist story. So much of our modern lives are about specialization and narrow frequency band that to be successful and make a living, we've got this dynamic trade-off where your frequency band becomes very narrow and you've got to really invest a lot of work to have novel cognitive movement, food, social experiences so that you are not more likely to fall into the trap of, of some sort of addictive uh, uh, dysfunctional behavior. And I have no good answers to it. Like I, I, I'm just barely aware of the, of like, Hey, I think this is really going on and I'm not entirely sure what to do about it. Like how do you rectify that you went to school to become an accountant and your world is about like crunching numbers and dealing with people's tax burden and everything. And you make a pretty good living with that. And you've got kids and a family and then how much variation can you plug into that and not undermine your, your ability to produce a living. Although the one answer that I have with that is that people just need a lot less shit. Like if they, if they bought less, had less, uh, went more for enriched experiences, um, we would find that we need a lot less financial means to be able to live a very enriched life, which sounds all kinds of uh, hippie and anti-consumerist and stuff like that. But, you know, it, it, I think that there's a ton of truth to it. Sure. Yeah. Every piece of shit that you have in your life is another string. It's another balloon coming out from your head of your It has a price tag attached to it. You know, and that's why I don't have a motorcycle right now because it stresses me out. You know, like I've had motorcycles since I was a little kid and they're so fun. I have a great time, you know, but I prefer my bike. You know, I just got like all this new crap for my bike and it cost me like 200 bucks and it was easy to install and my bike is amazing. You know, it's just so cool. And it was just so stress-free, you know, but with the motorcycle, I have that thing there and it's just, it's awesome. I have such a great time on it. And then there's this degree of, ooh, what if this breaks? Oh, now it did break. Now I got to figure out how to, oh, now that's going to cost this much money. What if I wreck it? Oh, you know, you have all these different thoughts that are juggling around. And some people are way more fantastic with juggling this stuff than others. Right. I'm not, <laughs> you know, like, I'm like, I'm like, I want to have my bike. I want to have a couple of the toys that I really love. You know, I need to have, you know, whatever, just a couple things. Relationships is the big thing. I want to wake up and just be stoked, you know, to see the people that I love and go get outside. And it's like, that's the stuff that there's not a lot of strings attached to that. But so many people, we base ourselves around this material existence that can just disappear at any time. That's, right. str- that's stressful. You know, feeling like you could lose it all today, whether you realize it or not, I think that's stressful. And we have a lot of those subtle stressors that we don't necessarily recognize, you know, and that's the real, that's the real tax of stress is stress is everywhere. You know, we think of it as only being this one, it's got to be from work, you know, it's got to be from my wife, you know, (laughs) or whatever, like there couldn't be anything else. And so... I'm curious for you, we're about running out of time here. Do you, has your movement practice changed much over the years? Because I know you have a background with powerlifting and you've been doing jujitsu and what's important to you for movement these days and how does that impact your life in general? That's a great question and that's a little insight into the neuroses of Rob Wolf, you know, because of the 
powerlifting background. I, I had in my head that if I couldn't walk into the gym, throw 300 pounds on, on the, the bar for a back squat and be able to, you know, squat it 10 times easy that I, right. I was somehow lesser of a Worthless. human being. Right. And, um, and there's some certain performance kind of cool things with that. Like at five foot nine, I used to be able to flat foot dunk a tennis ball. I could stand, or, stand under a basketball hoop and just boing, jump up there and, and do it. Um, if you asked me to dribble a basketball up and do a layup, then that would be a, a horrific <laughs> mistake. But, you know, um, I had a lot of uh, self-worth tied into that, that kind of strength and power type stuff. And now being 43 and having some injuries and, you know, uh, 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 the focus really is mobility. Like I've tweaked my back a couple of times. Right. And I tell you what, when I'm laying face down in the floor in extension trying to get a bulging disc back into place and I've got <laughs> shooting pains shooting down my feet and my three-year-old daughter is like, Dada, do you want to play soccer in the front yard? And I'm like, I literally cannot. And I'm calling like, yeah, three, a 400-pound back squat doesn't matter. <laughs> oh. Like it just flat doesn't matter. And so my, my shift has really been towards mobility, more gymnastics type, type stuff. I still squat a little bit. I still deadlift a little bit, but I, I keep the weights relatively light. I only lift weights that I can move quickly but, but controlled. And then I do a lot more mobility type stuff, some capoeira, some kind of yoga flow. Um, I've kind of hybridized some things that I've learned out of yoga, jujitsu and capoeira. And so I'll do these kind of uh, extemporaneous flow sessions in the morning to, to just, you know, break off the, the, the crustiness from the, the, the night's sleep and, and get moving. And if I'm mobile, then I'm really, really happy. And uh, that, that's really been my, my primary focus. And if I lose mobility, like if my knee feels tweaked, if my back feels tweaked, if I'm feeling stiff and, and old and lethargic, then that sucks. Like yeah. that's, that's terrible. Right. And then that's, and that kind of comes back to the point of, you know, if your knees wacky, if your hips wacky, if you're feeling old and stuck and your fascia is all agglomerated and you just, your body feels kind of like a prison, you know, that will impact your guts. That will impact your yeah. brain. That will impact your perspective on reality. That will create a loop of information. The way that you see the world, the world sucks. I suck. Rah, rah. World gets worse and worse and worse and worse. You know, and it's like, it's very easy to say like, oh, well, you just need this pill and you'll be all good. It's like, I, I don't know about that. Right. You know, the pill oftentimes I think is a placebo. If placebos work, it's like 50-50 from my understanding. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I think like 70% actually. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, yeah. so they work better than most pharmaceuticals. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. with, the, with the placebo, it's actually activating your own system. With the pharmaceutical, you have the, you know, the drawback of, oh, yeah, your liver has to process this shit. Right. <laughs> so awesome, man. I, I could talk to you all day. I really appreciate you coming on. Super, super fun conversation. Um, how do people find you? I think your, your work's great. I think everyone should Thanks. check it out immediately. There's so much information. If you want to geek out with this stuff, like you can go deep into the black hole of, of Rob Wolf. So <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah. It's been a huge honor being on the show. RobWolf.com is where the, the blog and the website is. I have a podcast, Paleo Solution Podcast. We've been bumping out those jams for about five years now. We're up to like six or seven listeners. So I, I always say six <laughs> listeners can't be wrong. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I'm the eighth listener actually. So perfect. Yeah. You perfect. can put that on the, on the board. We're growing exponentially. Yeah. Nice. Align 
podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I greatly appreciate your comments and your shares in iTunes. They determine the ranking and the visibility of the show and they make me smile. So I look forward to reading those guys. Be sure to check out the website, aligntherapy.com. That's A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you can find my blog. You can find this podcast, more information about the topics and the, and the uh, guests that we've had on the show. You can find hundreds of absolutely free instructional videos on self-care, functional movement, how to get strong, how to get fast, how to get exactly what you want out of your body. You can check out the online coaching where we work, how, work out how to optimize your movement practice so that you can live optimally and pain-free for the rest of your life. As well, be sure to check out the self-care kit where it is as small enough to fit underneath the seat in your car. And it's like a physical therapist and a massage therapist all wrapped up into one package. I know you guys are going to love the website. I know you guys are going to get a lot of value out of it. And I look forward to hearing your comments. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening. And remember to join the movement by subscribing to the podcast. If the information has been helpful, please share and leave your comments in iTunes. Aaron personally reads each one and it makes all the work worthwhile. Together, we will make a difference and continue to bring more powerful and inspiring messages to the world. Align Podcast.